0: This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation, the land on which I am lucky enough to raise my son, always was and always will be Aboriginal land. This episode of Ready or Not is brought to you by Elan House of Wellness, the ultimate destination for postpartum care, supporting mothers with food, education, self-care tools and gifts.
1: Things are happening to me and my body and my friendship and my work and my outlook and my job and everything. I kind of just stopped existing. And one day I would come back and I would have nice hair again. If a man decides to, for absolutely no reason and the benefit of nobody, climb up a mountain, we call him a hero, my very body, the blood and bones of me held a question, which was, am I going to have a baby? The tiny problem was that he didn't really want to have kids. I grew every single centimetre of this boy. Like, this is all from my body. It's my blood, it's my milk, I made all of him. That is a wild responsibility to carry around. But the truth is that we move as a pack.
0: Nell Frizzell might just be one of the wisest and funniest people I've ever had the pleasure of speaking to. She's a journalist, an author, and a mother. And she writes with the sort of candour and kind sense of authority that makes you trust her immediately. My dog-eared copies of her books, The Panic Years and Holding the Baby, are completely battered and bruised. Such is the wisdom and comfort that her words bring to exploring gender, motherhood, politics and culture. Here, we talk about the flattened female identity of motherhood. Why mothers feel the need to hide their children in order to be taken seriously and her experiences moving through the flux, the panic years, the tracksuit years and the partial eclipse. I'm Lucinda, this is Ready or Not and here is the remarkable and rollicking Nell Frazel. Nell, there's four phrases that you cover in your books, The Panic Years and Holding the Baby that I'd love for you to explain to the guests and these are the flux, the Panic Years, The Tracksuit Years, and The Partial Eclipse. What do they mean? What do they mean? What does Is it, it all mean, a-
1: Basil? <laughs> <What are> you- <laughs> Flux was an interesting one. I really wanted the book to be called In Flux. I wanted that to be the name of The Panic Years. I actually had like 15 other titles that I wanted to use. it. I really love The Panic Years now. And when I said influx, my mum took me up and she said, that just means throwing up. You can't have a book called Throwing Up. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> but basically I had this notion, at, but around sort of 28 to 30 in my case, but it happens at other times for people, I was aware that there was something happening and we didn't have a shared language. We didn't have a vocabulary for what that was. And so there was no easy shorthand to say to people, I'm in this state. Things are happening to me and my body and my friendship and my work and my outlook and my job and everything. And so I really wanted to create that. I remember thinking that someone must have come up with the term menopause and someone invented the term puberty, so why can't I? And so exactly relating to those two examples, the panic years is the equivalent of what we would say middle age or adolescence. It's a period of time during which I think primarily women, but also some men and non-binary people, go through this enormous transformational change where you become aware of the finite nature of fertility and you become aware to some extent of your mortality because fertility and mortality they're like the two definite things a woman called Eleanor I think I quote it in the panic here said to me there are two things we know to be certain in this life that one day you will lose your ability to have children and that one day you will die and i think the panic years is when those two really major sort of cornerstones of your life come to home to roost in a really i think positive electric exciting way because what you know they define and give shape to your life so that was the panic years is the, the period of time but the flux is the sort of physiological biological change that happened to me specifically but i think happens to lots of women where they either become pregnant they either try or they try to get pregnant and can't or they decide to never be pregnant. And those are like big physiological changes that you will experience in your body. And once you've crossed the threshold, you're not going to go back. And so I really want—I really loved the idea and it's happening now. And it's absolutely thrilling to me that there would be WhatsApp groups on the other side of the world where people would be saying, oh, you know, like Marion, I think she's in the panic years or like, oh, like classic panic years, blah, 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 or this is just the flux and I hope my hair will hopefully stop falling out or whatever. Then when I'd written the panic years, my son was only a baby. When he got to about two and a half, three, I suddenly realised there's this other sort of coda to that enormous change, which we have language to define the transformation of babies from infants into babies into toddlers, and we have no equivalent for parents. So you're just a mother from the word go and you stay a mother. But to mother a four-month-old is a very different thing to mothering an 18-month-old. And I found it very frustrating that we didn't again have the language to kind of honour that difference or define it. And so I wanted there to be a descriptor of that period of time where you are hopefully extremely occupied by the work of parenting But I also wanted there to be language for the change that that enacts upon you psychologically, emotionally, physically. So the tracksuit years, and it's a term that my friend Sharon gave me and I thought it was so funny. The tracksuit years is is the period of time where you are sort of just covered in the fluids of other people and your life. You're covered in yogurt and snot and piss and all your waistbands are elasticated and you probably are spending more time if you're lucky enough to have a home in your home, but you're basically in that kind of state. But in that, the actual experience for me was like a partial eclipse. So I knew I was still there. My identity still existed. I was still shining out the sort of same voltage that I'd always had, but it was being almost entirely absorbed by my child. So if people could see me at all, they saw me as a sort of thin line of light around the edges of him. And I mean that, not in a depressing way, because I think what a like incredible honour to be able to pour that much attention and focus and love and logistic management and insight into a person. And like, hopefully my mum did it to me and her grandmother did it to whatever. It goes on and on. But it can feel really frustrating to realise that according to a kind of consumer-oriented, patriarchal, sexist, old-fashioned, white, supremacist version of the world I kind of just stopped existing I'd just gone off into the kind of wilder lands the hinterlands and one day I would come back and I would have nice hair again and I'd want to talk about the things I'd bought and I would be And you'd wear normal
0: pants I'd (laughs) wear normal pants
1: and I'd be around to service the egos of the men in my life but that I think that's like that's a very unhelpful way of seeing that period of time and actually the eclipse You do feel a bit like you've gone to another planet called Mother and you one day are allowed to passport back to come to Earth. But actually, why can't we celebrate that as a a specific destination in itself that is really meaningful, needs a huge amount of support, is really hard work? If a man decides to, for absolutely no reason and the benefit of nobody, climb up a mountain, we call him a hero. And if a woman raises a person... To be like physically and emotionally capable for the rest of their life. We're like, oh yeah, fantastic. You just did what you're meant to do. Yeah. Like, oh, it's just very natural. It comes, you see, it's so heroic. (laughs) It's so heroic. Way better than climbing a mountain. So much better than climbing a mountain or playing football (laughs) or like golf. Oh, golf, (laughs) war. Like, I, I genuinely think this is more heroic than anything else I've witnessed. And I don't mean. That is a sort of binary against people who choose not to have children. I don't mean that. I just mean we should all respect the work of creating humans uh, slightly above the work of creating trainers or films or football leagues, which at the moment it doesn't feel like we do.
0: That is so well said. And you brought so much context to things that I've definitely felt. As soon as I saw the phrase, the panic years, I thought, I think I know what this means. And i would never <laughs> seen it before. And as far as the tracksuit years go, well, I am pretty much always in a glorified version of tracksuits. And I did the other day have this thought of like, when will I dress normally again? Or what yeah. what society perceives as
1: normally. So it was nice to be pulled out of those moments. I wore maternity leggings. Until my son was probably starting nursery, they're so good. comfy. They're so That's comfy. So
0: brilliant. I never stopped yeah. wearing my pregnancy undies, and now <laughs> I'm back in them. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll take you back a bit now. Let's look back at the Nell that came before motherhood. What did career and life look like for you then?
1: Angsty, to be honest. Like, not I'm not an anxious person, but I was really obsessed with sort of my success in comparison to that of my peers. And I really wanted the validation of male sexual approval and work. My friend Daisy Buchanan, who is a brilliant author, she talks about the cocaine of work, where you get this like insane rush and adrenaline and feeling of euphoria when you hit a deadline and then sort of come down afterwards. And I've never taken cocaine. but I definitely had a lot of work cocaine in my 20s, where I really wanted, I just wanted everyone to look at me and tell me I was good. (laughs) Which is like, absolutely, it's the textbook description of low self-esteem, isn't it? That's what we're talking about here. But I was a journalist for years and I had other, at the beginning of my career, I'd moved to London and I was working in a women's library, which is really interesting. Just doing sort of very lowly paid admin role there. And I was freelance writing on the side. And this is where my sort of slightly insane Writing practice came to full because I'd wake up at like five in the morning and work before I went to work. And then I'd be at work and then I'd come home and work in the evening because I loved working. And I had moved to London with a boyfriend and we were together for six years. And then at 28, we broke up quite amicably, actually, which is largely thanks to him. He's probably one of the nicest, if not the nicest man I know. We're still really good friends. He was DJ at my wedding. I organised his stag do. We're really close. But when we broke up, I suddenly had this period of freedom that I hadn't realised I hadn't experienced before, where I could say yes to every opportunity. And so I said yes to every opportunity. And any work that was offered to me, any party, any event, any bit of travel, I just said yes. And it's quite infantilizing to just say yes to everything because it means you never have to consider what you really want and who you are. But it does give you a lot of material, and so I was just sort of careering around the world. I mean, that makes it sound much more high flying, but just careering around a landscape, swimming and having casual sex and eating whatever I could find and interviewing people and writing incredibly personal, revelatory stuff that I now think, ooh, I wish someone had filtered that. <laughs> but in the back of my mind was this sort of, I describe it as like the rumble under the tracks of a train that. I knew there was something, there was a question under there like, that basically thrummed away, will you have a baby? Will you have a baby? Will you have a baby? And you can call that social conditioning and to a large extent it is, or you can call it biological kind of determinism and to some extent it is. But I knew that in my, that my very body, the blood and bones of me held a question, which was, am I going to have a baby? And I wanted to know the answer. And at some point, Sometimes I was ambivalent about the answer sometimes I thought I definitely didn't want to have children, my dad had children, he had a, another relationship so when I was 20 he suddenly had another baby and I remember seeing what that did to him and thinking no sir, that looks <laughs> that looks very <laughs> tiring but by the time I was sort of 28 I remember thinking you know I di- I really do want to do this and I want to do this with someone I love, I wasn't quite ready to do it on my own I don't think at that point and so, I started therapy, all oh, which is like unbelievably lucky. Like I could afford to do therapy, um, and I I don't think it's very responsible to say to people, oh, you should you should have therapy, because that's like saying, oh, you should buy a house. Like who can? But for me, it was really transformative, and sorted out a lot of my relationships with men, like the way I was approaching relationships with men. And then, unsurprisingly, at thirty, I met this man who was pretty brilliant, you know, and he he was handsome and kind and clever and he was righteous. The tiny problem was that he didn't really want to have kids. And by that point, I desperately did. So we spent probably a year of wrangling about whether we were going to have children. And um, I still don't really know how I won that one, but I somehow won the argument and got pregnant really quickly. And thinking, I remember thinking that that was sort of the end of that story. And actually the, the joke of the panic years is that it, it carries on. And I'm now 38. That's 10 years since I entered the first flush of the panic years. And like I was just saying to you before we started recording, I just got my period this morning. I'd really like to have a baby and slightly, I'm wondering what my career is going to look like in the next 10 years. I wonder where I'm going to live. Occasionally, I wonder what kind of relationship I want to be in. It doesn't necessarily stop when you have a baby. That
0: is uh, very interesting. It's like when you hear as well that babies or kids don't necessarily sleep all that well at five. You go, oh, shit, I thought I was yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> but my son does sleep very well. Don't worry. Okay, great. You, okay, they will we'll, we'll sleep.
0: manifest that into my future. <laughs> so you eventually fall pregnant after this period of uncertainty, I guess, of loving this person and wanting to spend your life with this person but this person potentially not wanting a child. How does pregnancy then sit with you? I actually remember reading at some part of the book, I'm getting ahead of myself now, but at some part of the panic years, you talk about that worry of what have I done? I pretty much have convinced him to come, not convinced, but talked him into coming in on this ride. And then you have the newborn and it's pretty full on.
1: Yeah. Did any of that start in pregnancy of those fears or worries? Oh, yeah. I had a lot of fears and worries about being pregnant. I almost don't know how you couldn't. When I see those kind of milky-faced, smiling women who are, like, sinking pints and going dancing, I think, like, how are you turning off that voice in your head that is full of anxiety and worries, which is not a judgment on them. I'm not saying that what they're doing is dangerous or that in any way that they shouldn't. I just couldn't imagine being laid back. (laughs) So I remember... I think when I was pregnant, I felt like I was carrying the entirety of the responsibility to keep somebody alive, but there was nothing active I could do to keep them alive. And that's a very weird position to be in. It's all hidden. You don't know. One in four pregnancies don't last full term. So, of course, that's like in my head all the time. And through no fault of my own, I might have miscarried or I might have had to terminate the pregnancy. And that responsibility weighed on me very heavily. What changed, I think, after I gave birth was I remember thinking, I really can't die now. Like, I can't die. Yes. Because if I die, this, what happens? And, you know, I've been very, very, very lucky in my life that I haven't had anyone my age die well I have actually this summer but at that point I hadn't and so it felt like quite a remote threat but quite a real one and so I I stopped cycling and I stopped doing all these things that I used to do quite risky behavior because I just felt like a life support vessel for my son and I sort of thought I have to keep if you're breastfeeding you literally do have to keep your child alive they I, I remember holding him he was six months old looking down at him and thinking, I grew every single centimetre of this boy. Like this is all from my body. It's my blood. It's my milk. I made all of him. He's never drunk water. Like a grain of rice hasn't passed his lips. This is all my body. That is a wild responsibility to carry around. But there was also threaded through that the kind of the flash that if I did If anything happened to me, my partner would then be a single dad to a child that he had never really imagined having. And that's a big thing. And so I fell into a classic trap that I think lots of people do, which is wanting to protect my partner from the sort of rougher bits of parenting. So I did a lot of the nights. He He would change the nappies, but I did everything else at night he was also training as a teacher at this point so he was working like 12-hour days on the other side of london so i sort of felt like i had to i had to cushion this i had to cushion it for him for fear that he would find it too difficult and leave and i'm really sad now to look back at that and realize that i the disservice i i paid to him because actually the best way to keep a healthy relationship and to keep a partner engaged with you and family life is to make them do the hard stuff you know there's research pregnant then screwed is this campaign organization based in the uk who did research into you know the divorce rates after having your first child and the single biggest change was how much parenting a father did yeah the more parenting hands-on parenting by which i mean Cleaning, wiping, winding, like dealing with the screaming, changing, all of that. The more of that they did, the more likely you are to stay together as a heterosexual couple. And so I think I was scared that because Nick had not been so determined to have children as I was, I had to make it look nice for him. In some, I mean, I'm saying this. I still would like hand him a screaming baby at two in the morning while weeping and like leaking my body, leaking fluids all over the house. It didn't look like a pampers ad, but I think psychologically, I was scared of showing him the sort of beastly side of parenting. No, but I
0: understand that sentiment because even there was no question of whether my husband wanted children or not. But still, in those early days, if I really look back, and I think your book reminded me of this. I definitely had those moments of being like, oh, does he love this child the way I do? And I feel like I felt a bit protective maybe because the child had literally been inside of me.
1: Yeah, yeah. And we are served a very toxic cultural narrative about men, which is that they they want to be free. They have these voracious sexual appetites. They're incredibly ambitious. Their heads are turned very easily and they find the drudgery of domestic life unbearable absolute bollocks i don't know how many men in your 30s you know but they are not voraciously sexual beings they are not like cataclysmically ambitious they don't want to go out every night dancing the men i know in their 30s single or otherwise are quite like they really like to sit at home and look at websites of historical aerial photographs of the uk (laughs) and listen to podcasts about Arsenal and <laughs> maybe have a beer, but largely just sort of relax. The idea that you have to like, you have to somehow rein in this like whirlwind of libido is so untrue. Actually, the people I know who are whirlwind of libido are the 30-year-old single women. My God, those guys have got it going on. Not the 35-year-old men, particularly if they've had children. They, they are very, I don't know how what it's like in your house. But I don't, I cannot remember a time that my partner has ever said, let's have a party. Yes.
0: (laughs) Oh, I Even sometimes when I'm like, you can go do something if you want to. Like, I'm not chaining you here all the time. Like, yes, we're even parents and you don't just get to go to the pub every night. But like, go do something on this Saturday night. I'm happy. And he's like, no, I'm happy with you guys. And it's funny that I think it's so deeply rooted in us that... We don't think the men want to be around us,
1: but that's just not the truth. No, and let if we were gonna dig into that a little deeper, where would that lie come from? Oh, because if you tell women that for five hundred a thousand years, they will then really do anything. You know, like they will do anything and that and it's like such a power move to tell women out of state of extreme physical vulnerability which is what that postnatal period is he might leave if you don't behave it's such a poisonous toxic narrative but it means that women are oppressed subdued passive frightened and this is in relationships i'm making assumptions here but i'm i think i'm
0: making well informed assumptions this is in very safe relationships with willing partners that you and i are talking about so we're in more dangerous contexts and more unhealthy contexts you can understand where that fear comes from and how i guess that Beast of the patriarchy is kept fed and kept churning.
1: Yeah. Good point.
0: I want to take you back before I take you forward because we have, I've hopped around a bit with you, but it's because I'm so excited to talk to you. You talk about something in the panic years that I think will resonate with a lot of womb holders, pregnant people and that is that you were so nervous and guilt-riddled to tell your manager that you were pregnant. It yeah. ended up great. You had a great supportive manager, but tell us how you felt in the lead up and then how that played out.
1: So it's really interesting. I When I got pregnant, I had got a placement to train as a secondary school teacher. I was going to leave this filthy world of writing behind and inspire future generations. And so I was going into a school, and I was sort of building up your hours, you know, you have to get a certain amount of experience before you started the course. And I then got pregnant. And I can't say it was completely not my plan, because I had wanted to get pregnant. But I thought it would take a while. Everyone had told me it'd take a year. And it didn't take me a year, it took me like a month. And I was so worried that I was letting her down. I was so worried I would never be taken seriously. I was so worried that I had fallen into a kind of stereotype that I was undoing the work of all of those women for the last 50 years who have said to employers and managers and business people and government agencies, no, women in their 30s are really good workers. I was going to slightly undo that all by saying, oh, sorry, I can't actually do this job. You know, I can't do it now and I might not be able to do it for a year or two. And so I felt guilt. And worry and shame. And then when I told her, and it was a female manager, she was so nice about it. She was incredibly kind. And she just was like, that's so, that's really exciting, was her. And, and you know. You're like, what? And, <laughs> and I, oh, is that exciting? <laughs> and then the really funny coda to that story is that when my son was about six months old, maybe, I was pushing him in a buggy through a part of town that I don't go to all that often and I suddenly saw her there and she had a baby in a sling. And when I had told her that I was pregnant, she must have been either a month pregnant or about to get pregnant. She was a couple of months behind me. And so her openness and kindness about my early pregnancy was also informed by the fact that of course, and we, it's really good to remember this, other people in your life are doing the same things that you are. Yes, you feel like it's just you. But I think away from that job, I was still being a freelance writer. I'm still being a journalist. I was still pitching ideas and taking up commissions. And I thought, honestly, until my son, I think until the first lockdown, I thought I had a duty to completely hide the existence of my child or my pregnancy to be taken seriously as a working person. I had to almost pretend it wasn't there that I that I was not pregnant and or that if I was pregnant it had no impact on me whatsoever and then after I had a child you know I would if I was trying to have a phone meeting with someone I would spend maybe an hour and a half trying to get him to fall asleep so I could have a 10 minute phone chat or I would clear if I was having a zoom call I would clear all the baby stuff out of shot because I thought it undermined me the pandemic is and was awful and thousands of people died unnecessarily in this country because of the way it was handled. And I feel it was a horrible thing. But in one respect, it changed work culture, which is that we had to accept that people have two jobs often, one job paid and one job at home. And the, the job at home doesn't make them unable to do their paid job. And we have to allow them to sort of fulfil both roles in order to be good at both of them.
0: When I think about the Christmas holiday period, I feel both excitement and dread. It's a time of joy, but it can also be stressful. And even more so as I head towards the end of my second pregnancy with a busy toddler in tow. With this in mind, Elan House of Wellness wants mothers to prioritise themselves this summer. Through their incredibly thoughtful offering of dry mixes like the dark chocolate banana bread... Traditional Chinese medicine mixes. I can't wait to try the Restore Herbal Soup in my upcoming postpartum. And gifts including affirmation cards, beautiful body oils, mists and creams. Elan House of Wellness is changing the way we think about postpartum care and looking after mothers. Whether it's a gift for yourself for getting through this crazy period or something for the special mother figure in your life, you can shop their range of family and pregnancy-friendly products at elan.house. All of their products are carefully curated through a contemporary interpretation of ancient Chinese traditions that believe that when you support the well-being of the mother, you in turn support the entire family. Listeners of Ready or Not will receive 10% off using code POSTPARTUMREADY at elan.house. This offer has no expiration date, but excludes 28-day postpartum packages and gift certificates. I had a female mother manager at my previous workplace when I was trying to conceive. And I've only just realised now, speaking to you, while COVID, as you just highlighted, was terrible for so many reasons. I actually saw her mother in the background of so many of our meetings and that was such a joy and a privilege as someone who was nervous about how that would look Yeah, to see that. And I've never thought about that until now. Something else that really lit a fire in me on this conversation that you were just talking about and this reflection of, I guess, feeling like you were undoing the work of feminists before you is that I would consider myself a feminist, but also a very maternal person. I wanted a kid as soon as I knew what a kid was. I was a kid myself, probably. Yeah. And I always thought that was a bit uncool and unsexy. And I would water that down, that longing in front of- Listen, I know, exactly, exactly, (laughs) exactly, yeah. Especially in front of my friends that I would think of as a bit more cool, a bit more independent, a bit more career-driven that didn't, maybe not necessarily didn't want
1: kids, but just didn't think about it in the way I do. Why do you think it is that we do that? The cool girl thing, it's so interesting. I thought it was, I thought to be maternal and to even have the skills that might be useful if you had children was so uncool, so embarrassing. I probably then would have called it lame, which is like weird ableist language that I try not to use now, but I'd be like, God, it's so lame. Because we are dancing to the beat of 20 year old men, of course, like they are the ones who have designed most mass media and culture which tells you that to be vibrant useful sexy and exciting you have to be magically and invisibly infertile sexually available dedicated to the pursuit of money and status which shocker is not true (laughs) it's just not true it's such a pernicious view so I could yeah I loved babies from like you i would i was like a heat-seeking missile if there was a baby around even when i was like seven i would want to go and hold it and i'd be like i've made it go to sleep look at me and i could cook and i could make clothes and i liked reading stories and i could play to some extent and like all of these things that i remember thinking made me an embarrassing Stepford wife rather than a fairly well-rounded, useful member of the community. Yes, So I think basically, where does it come from? It comes from the fact that we have allowed a very particular type of male energy, and it's not always inhabited by men, but it's a very male energy to drive what we consider worthwhile. And it's basically stuff that makes money for someone. And A lot of the work of parenting doesn't make anyone any money at all. And therefore, a sort of capitalist, consumer driven society can dismiss it. If I sing a song to my son and dance, like, and take him for a walk in a nature reserve and show him a mushroom, it's autumn here in the UK, no one's making any money from that. If I film it and put it on TikTok, someone is making (laughs) money from it. And then it sort of becomes its own thing. But just the pursuit of, Enriching another human being with love and satisfaction and insight and wisdom, we don't think is worthwhile because it doesn't make anyone any money. Money. Bloody, <laughs> money. Bloody <laughs> money. Go on
0: about money for a whole nother episode. <laughs> but on this, I loved you have a podcast that's also called The Panic Years that I think was released in the same year as the book. Mm, mm. And there's a lot of really great conversations. I've listened to most of them. I really loved your conversation with Pandora Sykes about the flattened female identity of motherhood and the way you explored the question, am I a mother or am I just someone who happened to have a baby? And I want to know, as someone who's six years
1: into parenting, how would you answer that question now? I'm now, a, like, very much a mother. I, and I think I have, hopefully, through writing the panic years and holding the baby and I have a column with Vogue and just the sheer sort of wealth of time. I've hopefully pushed out the corners of what that means to me to include a whole range of stuff that I love that phrase of Pandora about the flattened identity. Because it's so easy to say she's a mother and just be like oh yeah I've got it I know exactly what that means yeah like she's boring she cooks she cleans that's all she does she wears flat brown boots her keys jingle she's always got raisins in her pocket and yeah, she, she talks in a baby voice and that's all she. she's is. obsessed with laundry <laughs> she talks about laundry all the time and like even that weird like that is a description of a middle-class white mother like there are millions of people that that doesn't apply to from the very off but and this is to complicate that picture a little bit more I also really love that as a mother and someone who a lot of how I walk through the world is defined by the fact that I'm a mother now and I have a child I also feel an affinity with millions of people who I know are doing the same thing so it's not to say that we're all the same because obviously we're not but there is a sort of communality there is something fundamental and profound about a shared experience or purpose or insight or outlook that I love I completely love that I can walk up to a 22 year old black girl on a bus with a baby who's jangling her keys and think yeah like I can I can be here and witness you and maybe even help you because we have that in common and her and I might not have much else in our lives that is the same but we do have that I feel like in my
0: experience I have come full circle in sometimes trying to avoid that identity and then being like that's a really beautiful part of my identity why do I as Pandora says flatten it have you had those moments where you feel like you're coming around the mountain but then you go back around and you flatten that identity ourselves and then
1: we uphold it again yeah completely I have friends who and I love this, they say like, oh, like at parties, I'm just always talking to dads. I don't really feel like one of the mums. And I sort of want to say, why are you doing that? Like, why are you saying that to yourself? That you aren't one of this group because the group is defined by having you in it. So make it what you want it to be. I think the the coming round to it again, we call it, I call it like demographic fatigue. When you look around and you realise you're all wearing the same dungarees and you've all been watching the same TV show and it's like oh god I'm I am one of those people because we all want to be like a little unique butterfly don't we but the truth is that we move as a pack and we are little we're shaved monkeys that's how we are we we need to be part of a tribe and a group and so if you look around you and realize that there you have a lot of peers who are mirroring your behavior don't beat yourself up about it that is the human condition that is how we're designed to live that's what safety looks like
0: I love the way you wrote about that we are interdependent as as a human race because it again makes you feel better better about those ideas of like oh if I am obsessed with being a mom or if I want to be a mom am I just a codependent not fully formed self so I really love that sentiment. I want to pull out a few quotes from Holding the Baby. I could chat to you for hours, but I'm getting very aware of the time. You're about to start your day. I'm about to end mine. So in one quote, you say, we are in a mess and the only way to climb out of it is to rethink entirely what we consider work and how work is remunerated. That's care work, domestic work, emotional labor, childcare, manual work, and paid work. Now, I wish you ruled the world because I think it would be a better place for primary caregivers and therefore (laughs) all parents and therefore all people because we all come from parents. If you could make any change at a policy level for families, for parents,
1: what would it be? No biggie listens, okay. Um, <laughs> if I ruled around, what would I do? Entire nation on your shoulders. Make a decision. The Holding the Baby is a memoir and a manifesto because I really wanted it to be an ambitious book that doesn't just say this is you know, and I think memoir is really important and I love it as a form where, as I sort of said, you know, you can write about your very personal experience with beauty and nuance, and other people can feed in their own experiences. That is lovely. But also Why can't a mother have a political manifesto where she says, this needs to change and this is how we can do it? And I've looked at it with a kind of clear eyed, cold gaze of experience and education and say, it doesn't need to be this way. It doesn't need to be like this. Which adds so much, by the way, because in the motherhood conversations, I think we
0: can often just feel at a loss, like things aren't right for us, but where do we go from here? Yeah. So I think
1: it's really important the way you added that narrative in. And we're so hard on idealism now. We treat idealism like it's sort of somehow pathetic or toxic. If anyone has any ideals, that they're somehow like a stupid blundering child. But idealism is actually how political change happens. Someone at some point comes up with the idea that we all move towards. So there is this manifesto at the back of the book. And the first point of order is to have free at the point of use nationalised childcare. I'm very lucky in the UK we have a National Health Service still just about until the Tories really do their number on it but what so if we can have a national health system why can't we have a national childcare system I don't understand if we had it was funded by taxes we had well-paid well-trained members of staff who were available you know in 1970 there was the first women's liberation conference this is 40 years ago where they asked their four demands were equal paying opportunities for men and women, free 24-hour childcare and access to abortion. And then two others, I can't remember. Um, 40 years, we have got no closer to either of those. But the idea of 24-hour childcare sounds as radical in 2023 as it did in 1970, and why? Babies are awake and small children are awake around the clock. So why can we not? And people... Can, want to work around the clock so why can we not have access to that so I sort of think in the same way that if my child fell out of Ben Broker's arm I could take him to a hospital at four in the morning and he could be seen if I need someone to l- look after my child for three hours at four in the morning so I can do something that should be available and I'm not saying like we should have like lots of oppressed Badly paid workers who are sort of ants to our big queen bee kind of thing. Ant to a queen bee, you know what I mean? I think actually let's recognize it as work. And there are people who want to, or need to work those shifts and they will find meaning and purpose in it. And it doesn't have to be discriminatory, it could be really positive. So, free nationalized childcare, um, to recognize unpaid domestic labor as work. And so, there we're getting into the sort of realms of a universal basic income actually it's the hardest job i've ever done i joke about it in holding the baby that if you advertise the job of mother it would be deemed illegal because you're saying sort of 24 hour shifts partial nudity bleeding pain (laughs) psychological like exhaustion sleep deprivation to the point of hysteria and hallucinations loneliness several meetings with outside agencies per week on a shift like on a shift all the time education healthcare catering all of that potential injury potential injury (laughs) or recovering from we wouldn't allow that as a job and yet we expect people to do it unpaid for up to five years until their child goes to school and actually if your child is disabled we expect you to do that for the rest of your or that child's life yeah um so recognize that as labor it is the hardest job i've ever done um It completely outranks any job that I've been better paid for. So let's recognise domestic labour as work. And then the final, if you're asking for sort of top three, one that I think is sort of, I don't know what, what it's like in Australia, but here I just want to take over more physical space with the work of parenting. So I think creches in workplaces, All those empty shops that, you know, since recession and lockdown are just empty. Why are they not community spaces where you can go and you need so little when you have small children, you need maybe some sort of mat and some, some object and you, and a bit of heating and a tap and babies and parents will entertain themselves there for hours. Also, Access to green space, public space, stop privatizing public space and allow it to be used by the whole community, including children. Um, so they would they would be my top three. And then on top of that, there's loads of other things. That I think like, why why can't we have state funded night nurses and why can't we stop people letting their dogs shit in their playgrounds? Why do we work from nine to five and schools operate from nine till three? Like these things are they're insane. Oh, the, a lot of my friends are doing the
0: three-year-old kinder thing at the moment and the hours are like nine till two. Yeah, If you're freelance, <laughs> maybe you can make make that work, but for anyone else.
1: Yeah, it's such a poor bit of design. It's, it's wild. It's
0: so badly designed. It is funny as well how you say that these things seem so like out of this world, but really we're not asking for that much and the amount of money that government's put in to wars and to... no other terrible things and we sound like we're asking for too much but it's like if you could see the way this would actually
1: improve the world exactly if you say like compulsory perinatal and postnatal mental health support for both parents whether that's a straight couple okay or if you're a single parent you can choose your co-parent and go along with them it might be your mum or your sister or whoever that sounds like oh we couldn't possibly afford to give everyone postnatal and perinatal mental health support why like if you want to have in this country, if you want to have a hysterectomy, you have to go for counselling. So we're saying there's money there to give people counselling if they don't want to have babies, but there's no money to give counselling if they do want to have babies. That's wrong. That's a strange... And I'm not sure if you know the
0: figure, but I'm sure it costs the government more to support these people that then end up in really poor health anyway, because they're not supported.
1: Exactly. Preventative health care is always cheaper than reactive health care, but we don't do it. We don't value it.
0: Now, you talk about something that's been coming up a lot for me lately, which is friendship challenges that can come up with your non-parent friends. And I hate even that we need to define parent friends and non-parent friends, but I genuinely just don't know how else to word it because I feel like I'm already putting a wall up. And you say, neither of you is wrong here and nobody is intentionally making the friendship come unstuck. It is just tricky for two people to navigate such huge changes in perfect synchronicity. I'm finding that a lot with this second pregnancy because I just have less to give. I feel like for the first six months, I just sort of lugged him around. I was able to make do, not always, but sometimes. Whereas now I'm like, oh, I'm really in the work now of like yeah, parenting and growing a human. And I want to know how these challenges have showed up for you
1: over the years and what you've learned or how you've navigated them. It is really tricky. I think partially it's made harder by people pretending it's not hard. We act like that's not going to happen. We act like have you literally say, oh, it's not going to change things. I'll still come to your birthday and I'll still be there and we can still go out and you can you can still like come over and stay or we'll go on holiday together. It'll be fine. It'll be normal. Which I think actually ties back to this idea of, being
0: maternal, being unsexy because you're like, no, 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 I'm me, I'm me I'm the old person I was, everything's fine
1: Real life is what happens when you're not looking after your children rather than the looking after your children actually being real life So we do a disservice to people by sort of pretending it's not going to happen and yet, we all know that when our friend gets into a new relationship we're not going to see them for a couple of months because they're going to be having a lot of sex and they're going to be going on a lot of dates and they're going to be doing lots of stuff (laughs) with their new partner If they get a new job we understand that for a couple of months, they're going to be absent. They're not necessarily, they might not be able to come to your birthday or your wedding. They might not be able, they might not remember that you have agreed to meet up on Thursday. They might not have time to come to the gym with you anymore, whatever. If they move to a different place, like if they get a posting in another country, all this stuff happens, whether you have children or not. But weirdly, we tell ourselves that having children is not a good excuse to not see someone. Having sex with a new boyfriend is a good excuse not to see someone, but having a baby isn't. And, <laughs> like, why? Because one services men and one doesn't. I honestly think if you want to, like, be... Oh, s- about wow. It. I've never thought about it like that. And so I haven't seen that same thing in my, like, friend's queer relationship. It's really interesting. I think it's probably healthier and better, and I would now do this if I got pregnant again, to say to people... I'm not going to be able to interrelate with you in the way that I have up until now for a year, because let's just say like a year um, and if it happens earlier than that, great. And if it happens after that, fine. But let's just say that for a year, I'm going to be quite crap at remembering things that you've told me. My short term memory is going to be poor. I'm going to be very tired. I'm going to have less money. I'm going to be largely hanging out in these kind of spaces and a good friend will either enjoy what you're enjoying. Like I've gone to some weird things with my friends because that's what they find interesting. Um I've gone on holidays to places that I wouldn't have chosen and I've gone to watch films that I don't particularly enjoy. And I've never like I haven't taken up football or anything, but like I've come close. Um (laughs) and so they if they're a good friend, they will either meet you there in what you're doing in the moment, or they will wait until you want to do the things that you used to do. And you will do the things that you used to do again. You know, I think, how long, I can't say how long it took me, but I remember there being moments where I would sort of look out at the world and think, oh, so that holding the baby opens with this scene of me standing on the train, going to my friend Sarah's party. And she had said, come in your pajamas or come in a ball gown, but nothing in between. So I was wearing a pair of black satin pyjamas and these enormous heels and full makeup and I had a bottle of wine in my bag and I was standing on the train in the dark at night going over London like a sort of astronaut and I remember looking up and down the train and thinking no one on this train can even see I'm a mum. No one on this train knows I'm a mother. Nobody here could tell that less than a year ago like my pelvis literally pulled apart, and a person came out. So you do have those moments where you can live a different rhythm. You know, I'm not saying you go back as if you haven't had a child, but you you can do those things. You can go to parties if that's what you want to do, or you can go hiking if that's what you want to do, or whatever it is that's sort of you know you can have a full conversation. But the thing to avoid is acting like nothing's changed and then getting frustrated that it's changed if you are trying to meet your friend in a wine bar at seven o'clock at night and have a three hour long session where you have a really in-depth conversation about dating you are setting yourself up as both the parent and non-parent for disappointment because that is very hard to achieve so sort of change your expectations and know that it's not forever I think that's actually the best advice anyone's ever given on that topic. (laughs) I love that. It's so obvious now
0: that you say it, but I've never thought about it in that way. Let's stop pretending. It's like when you say you're five minutes away and you know you're 20 minutes away. Yeah. (laughs) Stop lying. (laughs) Yeah. So this is a long quote, so you're going to need to buckle up and listen to your own words for a bit. I don't know how I love.
1: I love having my book read to me. It's so funny. Oh, good. Okay, (laughs) I was thinking, do you like it
0: or not? So this is a long one, but I had to share this because I think in a few paragraphs you've managed to capture the experience of so many parents. So you say... That night, and it's very closely linked to what we were just talking about. That night, as I sat across a table the size of a cheese slice and stared blankly into the familiar face of one of my oldest friends, I wasn't suffering a crisis of friendship but a conflict of identity. I felt simultaneously neither the pre-motherhood woman, who had once stayed up with her until 2am in a denim skirt and pair of borrowed boots singing along to Joni Mitchell and smoking roll-ups, Nor in that moment, the housebound, bouncing, lactic appendage who spent her days and nights defined by the feeding and rocking of a baby. Neither was I the experienced older mother who could confidently walk out of the house, put her phone in her bag, sink in three pints while chatting to an old friend and trust to fate that her children, under supervision of someone else, will be okay. I was behind the eclipse. I was slowly edging my way out. I was transforming like a Polaroid photo in real time. And like a good friend, she just let me get on with it. I love that so much because I'll often have those moments where I'm sitting on the couch on a Saturday night being like, gee, I used to be fun. And I'd think (laughs) about that rollicking girl that went out to all hours of the night and God knows what she talked about and what she danced to, but she had a good time. And so you do have these moments of seeing your identity change and shift over time and now I'm in a different part of motherhood where my kid's getting well, he's still very young, but he's getting a little bit older and I'm about to become a mum again. So as you said earlier, in the way of the panic years, I guess that they take different turns. Your identity in motherhood isn't just mum when you become a mum. It's always shifting.
1: Yeah. How has that looked for you over the years of motherhood? It's really interesting talking to you because, yeah, you you have a toddler and then you're pregnant again. So this is probably looks very different to you. But for me, because so far I only have one son, there was the transformation as he moved through each stage and I moved in parallel with him. It was beautiful and exciting and I would be, you know, every new thing is really cool and funny and disorienting and you learn loads and it's great. But it's also laced with grief, you know. I remember that holding things like jumpers I'd knitted for him that would never fit him again. And for some people, you know, it's the time, I don't know, I don't remember the last time I breastfed my son, but there will have been the last time I ever did that. And there will be a time, eventually, the last time that he ever sleeps in our bed. And there will be a point where he never again crawls. I remember I'd knitted him something, it no longer fitted. A friend of mine was having a baby, it was lockdown. I couldn't buy her anything so I undid this jumper and knitted it into a pair of socks and I I remember like sitting on the edge of his bed just crying and crying undoing this jumper because I was so sad that it was over yeah I was so sad that that period of babyhood had gone and at that point I didn't know if I would ever do it again I still don't know if I'm ever going to do it again so that shift is full of joy and transformation and frustration and anger and you know there's a lot in holding the baby about maternal fury and rage and how we don't give airtime to that nearly as much as we need to just for the safety and survival of everyone we need to be open about the fact that you will reach a point where you are considering doing brutal violent dangerous things to yourself and your child because it's an absolutely rational or necessary or unconscious response to the things that are happening to you so you will experience all of that and that has to have a change that has to have some kind of impact on your identity how could it not how could you not go through all of that and not feel i mean we talk like how many films are there about about just going to secondary school and as formative experiences go this one is pretty major you know physically emotionally psychologically all of that so i think the question about like the shift in identity has been huge and I talk to you now in a state of sort of strange limbo, where I don't know if I'm going to do that again. And if I could go back and tell the Nell at 28 or 30 or 35, if I could give her any advice, I would say, you might only do this once. And so it's really hard. And you're finding it really hard. And you're finding it really hard for reasons that are beyond your control. This is systematic obstacles that have been put in your way by thousands of years of the system that you didn't design. Um, And so, of course, you're cross and you're sad and you're lonely and you're poorer and you're bored. But you also will never have this again. So maybe just not savour it, but just absorb it. Stop trying to push it off you and move forward because this might be the only chance you get. And that's true for all life. But I think people who say live every day like it's it's your last. If I lived every day like it's my last, like very quickly, we would be living in a bin because it's not going would be so tired. It's <laughs> not like that. It's not always having an eye on the deadline, but it's just accepting that this might be your only experience of this. And whether that is pregnancy you know I had friends who lost several pregnancies and each time they had to say like I've been pregnant now and like that is in and of itself a meaningful experience and we're sort of we are encouraged to think of pregnancy as a means to an end but for a lot of people it is just the experience in and of itself and they never get the next bit and if you are struggling a lot of people listening to this right now will be really struggling I'm not diminishing that struggle, it is huge and real and very hard, but also know that it is finite and at some point it will end and you will feel ambivalent about it ending and that's fine and it's healthy and that's the human condition to feel two things at once, but I think it can feel like you're Sisyphus. You know, if you have an 18-month-old and you're pregnant, you are constantly rolling a rock up a hill that falls down every night. But at some point, you won't you won't be doing that anymore, and it will feel very disorienting that you're not doing it anymore.
0: And deep down, that's a huge fear
1: of mine. I,
0: I push those emotions away, but I know that I will grieve in the exact same way Yeah, when I'm putting away those jumpers that no longer fit. So I think that's beautifully said. Nell, i've loved talking to you and i could talk to you for another three hours but yeah let's just forget our kids and chat yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: Yes, no. i'll, I'll get a glass
0: take... of wine you get a coffee we'll <laughs> chat for longer no before we go i just wanted you to remind everyone of your
1: beautiful books because i love them so much and i think everyone should read them oh thank you very much yeah so the, the panic is for that sort of the big question will i have a baby should i have a baby if so how when and with whom and then that, the next sort of follow-on, Holding the Baby Witches, a sort of manifesto for change and a memoir of what that looked like for me. Um, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Good luck, mate. I Thank can't, you very much. It's going to be so <laughs> exciting. It's a whole bit, and I I envy you in lots of ways. I think it's going to be a sort of an electric time. It's going to be amazing.
0: It will be wild. I'm finally coming around to it because this pregnancy I have not embraced as much as my last one but I think I'm finally getting there so um no it will be wild I don't know what else it will be yet I feel like I'm going to be schooled in a totally different and new way to my son schooled me but I guess that's all part of it yeah yeah thank you so much for chatting to us thank you thanks for listening to ready or not if you liked the show Please tell your friends, subscribe or write a review. You can also find us on Instagram at readyornot.pod. That's it for today. We'll see you next time.